0: Welcome to Storytelling with Data, the podcast where listeners around the world learn to be better storytellers and presenters with best-selling author, speaker, and workshop guru, Cole nussbaumer naflik We'll cover a wide range of topics that will help you effectively show and tell your data stories. So get ready to separate yourself from the mess of 3D exploding pie charts and deliver knockout presentations. And with that, here's Cole. Hi, this is Cole, thanks for tuning in. We have a great episode in store for you today. If you've been following Storytelling with Data News lately, you may know that we've been taking steps to expand our team. Today, I'm excited to share with you our newest voice. It belongs to Amy Esselman, who just started this week as a data storyteller. Amy, welcome to the team, and welcome to the Storytelling with Data podcast.
1: Hi, Cole. Thank you so much. And hi to everyone listening. I'm so happy to be here.
0: Our topic today is change. As we learn to effectively visualize and communicate with data, we are apt to face challenges of change in a few ways. When we approach something differently from how it was done before, convincing colleagues to change their habits and behavior when it comes to how they visualize or communicate with data. And then, of course, there's driving change through what we communicate, right? actually influencing action through our data. We're going to talk more about each of these scenarios, discuss some common challenges and related ideas and strategies. Amy's done some research in this area and also experienced it firsthand. She'll soon share more about that. But first, Amy, I'm going to kick things over to you to tell us a story.
1: Thank you. This is a timely topic for me this week because I am going through a state of change starting a new job, but it's a, it's a positive change, right? It's a change that I'm facing as an opportunity to learn and grow. So I think it's important to notice that change can be a good thing, right? You get a new car that you wanted or a new job that you were hoping for a fresh cone of paint on the wall, but it's not always positive. It, it can be more intimidating or difficult. So I wanted to share a little story that I've encountered recently about an instance where I was trying to get somebody to change. Everybody probably has experienced this at some point in their life where either they were resistant to a change or they wanted something to change and the person they were working with were resistant. So in my personal life, a couple of weeks ago, we did the exciting activity of getting our carpets cleaned in our house. In our house, just the bedrooms have carpet. So we went to work removing all the furniture from our carpeted spaces and moving them into the non carpeted spaces. And it was going pretty smoothly until I got to my daughter's room. My daughter is a teenager and she has a lot of little trinkets in her room that she holds near and dear to her heart. (laughs) So as I was removing things for her room, I came across. I kid you not, a big bolt that's two inches long that she found on a fifth-grade hike during a field trip, and she just insists that she has to keep it for that memory. I'm not even sure where this came from, but she had an elaborate story and insisted that that she needed to keep it. And there's also a little helicopter, a broken helicopter that we actually found broken in a free toy bin. That she convinced me she needed because it reminded her of this helicopter ride we had taken once on vacation. Not because we got it on vacation, but because it reminded her of the memory. So after some time, I managed to get everything out of her room and the carpet cleaners came. I cleaned the carpets, they dried, and then we had to put everything back in their respective rooms. So I approached my daughter with, you know, positive attitude of an opportunity to rearrange her room and maybe declutter some things. And she was not as excited about this as I was. So we had a lot of debating, lots of discussions where I heard some of these emotional stories of the attachments she had to these things. and We compromised. And some things she allowed me to put in the donate pile and we took to goodwill. Some things that were broken made it in the trash. But it was not as much as I had hoped. But it was was definitely an experience for both of us. And I told my mom this story and she just had to laugh because I kept my baby blanket till I was in middle school. <laughs> and actually one of the things in my daughter's room is a precious moments doll. I don't know if anybody remembers precious moments, but a doll that I got as a child that she, that I can't give up. So that was something that we had to keep. Change can be hard. We have these emotional attachments to things that we're familiar with or yeah. accustomed to or, you know, that are, that are comforting to us. So I understand this hesitancy to switch things up and have experienced it myself, have seen other people experience it at the personal level, like I just described, but also professionally, probably yeah. your audience would be familiar with the, the struggle of getting people to let go of their Excel data tables in place of a visualization, something that you think is more effective and, and you know more digestible, but they they don't want to switch up.
0: Yeah. And it all goes to this natural tendency that you've touched on and talked about this, that humans cling to the familiar. (laughs) And I think everyone can probably self-reflect and come up with an instance of that in their own world, something that they should let go of or something that they might do differently. And we understand that there's benefit to doing both of those things. And yet, we still don't change our behavior. So we'll talk more about why that is. But before we do that, Amy, I'd love if you could share a bit about your background to help set the context for those who are listening.
1: Absolutely. So I studied math. I have a quantitative background. My career has been in and around data analytics. I began in my home state of Minnesota at a bank working in fraud risk department, writing SAS code, and eventually moved from fraud into the marketing department to do more data-driven marketing. And that that's really where what I call the human side of data was apparent to me because I had to start communicating to non-technical audiences and to higher levels within the organization. So my old way of working wasn't really effective. That old way of, well, let's let the data speak for itself, but data doesn't really speak. If it did, there would be no need for an analyst to have a job. So I had to learn when communicating with more non-technical people and to higher levels in the organization, you know, to be more precise and prescriptive and focus the attention to get their buy-in on my recommendations. From the bank, then I actually moved into a consulting role and got more experience in other industries and different use cases for data. And in my last role, I had to learn Tableau, which is you know, also something that involved a change. And I actually started the Tableau user group at our company. And through the development of that group, I, I realized that I really enjoy helping other people learn and apply these data visualizations best practices. So I went back to school at that point and got my doctorate degree and actually did some research in data visualizations used for decision-making. And then after graduating, I did some adjunct teaching work And the storytelling with data book is actually one of the books that's required for the course. So when your data storyteller position opened up, it seemed like the perfect blend of my experiences and my passion area for helping others learn this and apply these principles. So here I am.
0: Here you are. And in your very first week behind the microphone doing a podcast. I love it. (laughs) So why does change make people uncomfortable? Why is this something that causes discomfort? Why do we resist it when somebody wants us to do something differently or look at something in a new way? What is it that drives that?
1: Change, I think, is a a personal thing that everybody contends with. And it's going to depend on the situation and your experiences. But there is definitely emotional and physical reactions to change. We have this saying that change, it can be scary, right? Because... Familiarity is comforting. It offers a sense of security and stability. In my daughter's story, she she had these things that meant something to her. So I think it's the common cliche that the only constant in the world is change, yet humans are often hesitant to give something up that they're familiar with because of that emotional attachment. So beyond emotional attachment, there is actual effort involved in change. More often than not, you're asking someone to make a change. They have to spend their time learning something or doing something new. And if you're asking them to do something that they don't want to do, it could feel like you're taking away their freedom of choice or, or how they determine how they spend their time.
0: Or even their skill set of if you're asking me to do something that's outside of what I have done before or the tools I've used or the way that I've done it, that can be a really scary thing for people.
1: Yeah, because there's an opportunity to fail there, right? If I'm doing something new that I don't know, I'm not always going to be 100% successful. And that is something that could be really scary. I think all of it points back to the uncertainty in change because we don't know what we're going to get. It's not something we're familiar with. It might be something that'll turn out bad and we might fail. And as humans, we're we're hardwired to survive. So all of those things that come along with change and the uncertainty, we want to avoid. And that's why you would get resistance when faced with a change, especially a change that you didn't want to happen, or maybe that you didn't initiate.
0: Well, and I think that is the fundamental thing that maybe shifts people to see change as more as potential to fail versus opportunity. Because if it's something that you're driving, then you are already bought in and then you maybe frame what that looks like in a totally different way. Right? I think of somebody who comes to one of our workshops and is so excited because now they're going to, they're going to do everything differently. They're going to convince their colleagues to do everything differently. And they're excited by the opportunity. That then sometimes gets beat out very quickly by the resistance that folks face in others. But I think it is driven by that uncertainty and that possibility of failure that you talk about.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: So you've done research in this area as well on the not only the familiar, but this status quo bias and how that plays out in a business setting in other places. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your dissertation and some of the related research you've done?
1: I was very interested in this topic and chose to study it for many months, (laughs) read lots of articles, and I focused on the status quo bias for my thesis. So the status quo is the the tendency to remain with what you have, the current state or what you would call the, the status quo, because you feel like the disadvantages of leaving are perceived to be greater than the advantages. That's like what you're thinking when you're going through that. And so the general findings that are in the academic literature will come out of like psychology departments and they've done various studies on how people make decisions and when a status quo option is available. And they find that even when there's a better option or even when there is like no cost to switching... People's natural tendency is to stick with what they have, with what they know and what's familiar. And we actually focus on losing something more than understanding what we're going to gain. So we are worried about giving up something than actually being worried about what we're going to get back. That's the natural human tendency. I thought this was fascinating because I think when we focus on positives and like when when you're trying to do change, you, you used to do like value Like this is what you're going to get out of it. This is the positive side of the change. I mean, there's a whole phenomenon called value-based selling techniques, but that's not always going to work because if you're trying to get somebody to change from something that they have, there's been studies that have found that a resistance to change can actually turn into something more extreme that's called reactance, where they're pushing back on an idea. Mm
0: -hmm. So you
1: think about degrees of resistance, you might have a really low level of resistance where maybe somebody that agrees with what you're saying, but they're not going to change their behavior. Sure. But on the other end, you might have somebody who doesn't agree with what you're saying, still not change their behavior, or take it a step further and kind of dig in and actually push against your ideas in the opposite direction, which is what reactance is.
0: Well, and sometimes that happens in ways that's obvious, right? Where it's pushing back against you. In other ways, I imagine it's less in your face where they might be influencing others (laughs) to come around to their side or view point.
1: It's really two hurdles of change is one is getting the buy-in on the idea and the other is actually enacting the change that you're hoping happens. Yep. So it's, a lot more complex, I think, than what, what we often hope when we come up with these ideas. When I was doing my research, I had discovered a lot of research around cognitive biases. But when you're looking at data visualizations, which are now like, used ubiquitously to make decisions, little is actually known about how cognitive biases influence data visualization. There's a ton of research on visual perception bias, how people can accurately interpret a graph, how you can quickly understand a chart. But there isn't a whole lot about, if you present a chart that you can comprehend and you can quickly understand it, you might still have a cognitive bias hurdle to overcome that we haven't really dug into into the research. So I ended up doing a controlled experiment studying status quo bias with data visualizations because it was one of the biases that hasn't been studied yet. So Mm -hmm. I did one, replicated a study of a status quo, a very well-known one that was done. And I used just the textual format that the original study used. And then I compared that with one that used the textual format and a visual, trying to see if the visual would actually help mitigate the status quo
0: bias. And say what you mean about the textual piece.
1: It, It was a choice study. So there were different scenarios you were given. And one of the examples was a highway safety commission is deciding how to allocate their budget. And you can either choose to improve automobile safety or actually focus on the highway. And you could choose how you want to distribute this budget, 50-50, 60-40. So if you presented it neutrally, people would select it one way, or you could present it with a a status quo. So currently, we're splitting the budget 70% to automobiles and 30% to highways. Do you want to change it to 50-50 or 60-40? And... You could compare the selection rate of when an option, all the options were the same. It was positioned either neutrally as the status quo or as an alternative to the status quo. So when it was status quo, it was picked more often than when it was neutrally presented or when it was an alternative against a status quo. So people would more likely just go with what they had selected. So this is a common phenomenon that um, there was a book called, by Thaler and Sunstein called Nudge, where they focused on the status quo bias of how to get people to make choices. So if you give them a default or the status quo option, they're more likely to go with it. For example, 401k investing. If you automatically sign your employees up, they're more likely to take advantage of 401k than if you make them opt-in. So it's a psychological phenomenon where we just kind of pick the easiest, least resistance
0: path. And it's interesting here too, because I imagine in reality, this happens to an even greater extent than you saw in your study. Because in the study, it's a canned scenario where I personally don't actually have anything at stake. Maybe I get primed by the fact that it's been 50-50 before. So it's easy to stick with 50-50, right? I've got my answer. But if I'm actually in charge of the budget committee, or I'm involved in one of these projects, then that makes it that much more likely in reality that I would imagine the phenomenon that you observed in your research, that it's even more market for real.
1: Yes. And especially if you made that choice to begin with, if the budget yeah. allocation was yours and not something you inherited, it was dictated, you'll yeah. have more ownership of that idea and will be even more influenced by the status quo bias. Interesting. So the study actually discovered that the status quo bias existed in both scenarios. So the text scenario just supported the previous study. And then there was still status quo bias when there was a data visualization present. But there wasn't a statistically significant difference between the two variations to say data visualizations either you know, helped improve or further inhibited status quo bias. Okay. So that part is still unknown, they'll have to be future studies to figure that out. But I thought it was really interesting because a lot of times we're like, well, show them the data and they'll get it. But that's not always the case, right?
0: Yeah, there's a whole lot more that goes into people's decision making processes. The data is one piece. We like to think it rules everything sometimes, but rarely is that the case. So we've talked about why people dislike change. I think there's value in discussing what resistance looks like. How do we identify when we're trying to drive someone to accept something that's different from how they've done it in the past or actually act in a different way or do something? How do we tell when they're resisting or when we're encountering a challenge of change? I think Are there telltale ways to identify this?
1: I think if it's a strong opposition, it's going to be obvious, right? Because there'll be more tension, more conflict, maybe some gossip or arguing happening that somebody is really resistant. But what's even, I think, more scary than that aggressive response is the passive response Mm -hmm. where there's just inaction. You You gave your presentation and you walked away feeling like everybody agreed and then nothing changes.
0: Yes, I think you're right that it's this apathy or this lack of anything happening or lack of follow-up that is probably one of the biggest hallmarks of when we might be facing resistance like this and need to understand better so that we can change our strategies or, or try something in a different manner, which is different though than we make our case and the decision makers decide to do something differently instead. Because That happens all the time. And that isn't necessarily a resistance to change. That I think oftentimes is the decision maker having other things that they're bringing in as well. And then the data doesn't always have the answer. So they're choosing to act in a way that's different from that. One way of understanding whether there's resistance, and if you're unsure if people are either acting a different way or they're not acting at all, would be to ask directly and open up that conversation to get the conversation going. And I think oftentimes, if there's a group of decision makers and you're presenting to that group of decision makers, that in some cases, won't be the place to do that because you may not get the insight that you need versus if you're able to take people one-on-one and grab someone and you may get more honest input that way and insight into, right, if if you want something to happen and it's not happening, of what might be actually causing that resistance.
1: I think that's exactly right, Cole, and probably a good segue into what you should do if you want to overcome resistance to change. And if you, if you're not sure that are able to recognize if it's change or not, then ask the question. And then if it is kind of a resistance to change, I would say first and foremost, just to seek out an understanding of why that exists or why are they hesitant? What, what are they concerned about and have those conversations.
0: And I think even prior to that, there's the idea that if you're asking someone to do something differently, and and we'll get into more granularity on on what those different scenarios can look like, because I think the strategies that you employ as things look different will also look different. But you you Mm -hmm. talk about this general resistance that people have to change. I think part of it is just having empathy for that. If you are asking people to do something differently, understand that that you've come to that realization, but that it's a process to bring other people around and get them on board with that. And that process typically is much more involved than just saying, here's what we do next, or here's how we do things differently.
1: Yeah, definitely. That's the human side of it. So you're asking somebody to make a change and then they don't. And your initial reaction is just like, they don't get it. Why aren't they changing? What's wrong with them? But if you actually put yourself in their shoes, then you're the person being asked to make a change that wasn't your idea and it wasn't your choice. How would you respond? Probably like my daughter with the items in her room. I don't want to change. <laughs> so, understanding well, and then become a
0: stick in the mud maybe and hold on even more strongly to the status quo. Yes.
1: And I think it's important to understand that, you know, have that empathy so that you know where they're coming from again so you don't just keep pushing on the your value sale or what you think is important and then they they dig in and you get into that reactance phase and then it's once you get to that point I think it's harder to come back from
0: absolutely and so one way if you can anticipate that that could be something that might happen would be to figure out how do you involve people as part of the decision-making process or as part of the change management process so that rather than serving up to them how things should be different, you are involving them in how things should look different.
1: Yes, consider co-creation where it makes sense, especially if you have a big dissenter or, or maybe the person who created the, the graph that you're thinking about changing or the person that established the program you're recommending gets tweaked. That's where you'd want to start and make sure that they're on board and they have a voice in what actually gets recommended because then they'll feel like it's their idea. And then it's always easier to adopt your own idea than to have one forced upon you.
0: This comes back to, you know, many things that we talk about in this space, your audience and really knowing your audience, understanding them and being able to anticipate of your audience who's likely to support you, who is likely to want to stick to their guns of how things have always been and, and, and root in there. And then how does that mean you bring people in at different points of the process or you talk to them ahead of time, you involve them, you get them to help influence people around you to try to make the thing you want to happen happen
1: it always comes back to audience doesn't it? audience is king <laughs> yes yeah and I think that that is something that for me personally as an analyst was harder to get on board with to bring people that weren't my fellow analysts into that process and to have mm-hmm. a voice before I did all the magic and then presented it to them. Yeah. To, you know, because there well, so is that
0: tendency, right? To yeah. want to like use your superpower behind the scenes and then ta-da, here's what I did, which is unfortunately not the way to influence. <laughs>
1: no, no. And we, you know, we had an approach and we, within the team of analysts, we would always get feedback and bounce ideas off one another, but we never really brought in the business user or the audience until it got closer to the end. Yeah. But often that's like, it's a little too late now because we, we have our own bias. We have this like attachment bias where I don't want to give up all this stuff that I did. I already did all this work. So yeah, it can be hard to want to bring somebody into the fold of that magic, but it's even harder to bring them in later and then realize it's not going to work and you have to start over. Yeah. the, the, The thing that you have to keep remembering.
0: That is exactly the thing to be thinking of at the onset or early on in the planning process of when do you bring people in? What does that look like? in order to make everything be more successful. I mean, we encountered this at Google for sure and did it in the non-ideal way for a while before figuring out what we needed to do, which was basically part of our audience being engineers and being very skeptical of technical things that other groups do, particularly I think if that group sits in human resources as we did, (laughs) uh, you know, you can't get all the way to the end and then try to get buy-in and influence that way. It's just you're destined to fail. And so it means you actually have to get Get influential engineers involved early on in the study design, or we would do this massive employee survey every year. Like they would need to understand what we wanted to test with the questions to even be bought in on what those questions were and how they were framed. But by doing that, which takes so much more time up front you're almost ensured success because now you've ingrained these people in the project and now they are invested in the success and want to influence others around them as well. So it has these benefits that live on in ways that are super useful for actually driving change and getting people on board to something that may otherwise be difficult. Yeah, definitely. Let's talk about some other strategies. And actually I am curious because as we, we we talk about change as this big certain thing, but the form it takes can look very different. And I think as we think about the amount of Work (laughs) we're asking, or effort or input that we're asking people to do on the other end of it, looks different as well. Because a lot of times, if we're learning about how we visualize data, we're wanting to change maybe how we show things. And so, someone might want to change a graph in a report or the way that we uh, communicate a certain type of information. That's sort of one end of things where we're not actually asking the people on the receiving end to do anything really differently other than be accepting of this new way that we want to show stuff. So I guess we're asking them to do a little bit because now they have to understand that new way and let go of the status quo. But then there's another piece of driving change that is actually now you are asking the people on the receiving end to do something that's very different from what they've done before. So there's more effort involved and probably buy-in that has to happen. Although I guess buy-in happens in both places. Anyway, this is me wondering... Whether and how the strategies that we employ in those two scenarios look different. When we're just asking people to be accepting of something being different versus asking them to make a change directly.
1: My gut says, yes, it's going to be different because in each of those situations, their resistance exists for different reasons probably so different yeah. scenarios require a different level of understanding because you always have to get to the root of what is the challenge here that we're facing and how would we go about it definitely when you're trying to get somebody to take your information and then go off and do a change that's going to be hard because you're asking them to do some effort and do things differently and as we talked about that's hard and it's going to take time and that won't be as easy as maybe just consuming something differently But even though that sounds easier, it takes a lot for somebody to kind of understand what you're saying. And it's like, why did you need to change this? I already knew what I was doing. And it's just easier if we go back to the way it was.
0: Yes. And actually this is something that I think people hear a lot when they take something existing and want to change the way things are shown. Let's take the specific example of a monthly report. There's a report that we generate monthly that shows a variety of different metrics across different parts of the business or what have you. And they've historically been looked at in a similar way. And now we want to make changes to that, right? We want to declutter. We want to focus. We want to tell a story, whatever we want to do. Oftentimes we'll encounter this idea or the response that the old way is better. And actually, Mike has a post that I'll make sure that we link to in the show notes, and it's called The Old Way is Better. But one of my favorite lines from that post that sticks in my head is, they're not wrong right, when they say that. Because I think we, as analysts or as communicators, when we're trying to show something different, we're excited because we've just found this new way to do something, and it's going to change the way we look at things, and we put our work into it, and we show it to our audience, and they say, no, no, let's go back to what we were doing. That. Feels really bad, but being able to understand what's driving it. Because as you've talked about, Amy, familiar has the benefit of being familiar. And because of that familiarity, it, we place value in that. And so I think as we consider strategies for overcoming resistance to this sort of change in particular, there are really practical things that we can do. Because understanding that it's the familiarity that's causing people to maybe hold on tighter or dig in deeper and resist the change. I mean, I think one thing to think about is when you want to do something that drastically departs or is going to change things in a way that people might be resistant to in the way that we're talking about here, maybe don't do it with existing things. Look for new projects or new spaces where there's not going to be this status quo bias or this built-in attachment.
1: I was just thinking that definitely sometimes the old way is better, especially if you think about the situation, like how high are the stakes? How important is this really to put effort into overcoming this status quo bias? Also, what is the degree of resistance you're getting? Is it just passive? Or is it pretty strong reaction? Then yep. if you're getting a strong reaction and it's not a high stakes situation, I would say just let that be because there's probably other areas of opportunity that are lower hanging fruit for you to focus yes. on. Probably other people that maybe will be more open to your recommendations or other areas that are are high stakes. And by making those changes, will have a bigger impact. So then you have an example to point to that's going to make it easier for people to grasp what you're trying to propose.
0: Absolutely. I totally agree with that. If you are meeting resistance and and it's firm, and this may not be the place to start. And so... Trying things out in lower risk spaces, or Amy, as you mentioned, finding someone who is more likely to be accepting of the things that you want to do, because what we see happens is when we have small successes over time, those things build. And as you have them build your confidence and other people's credibility so that over time, then that can make it easier to drive, you know, that change that you maybe met resistance to in the first place. I think another strategy when it is something that already exists and you want to make changes is augment don't replace this actually this is a strategy that mike talks about in his blog article Um, we also have a video called overcoming resistance that elizabeth did that dives into a very specific example with a specific data visualization and goes through five different strategies of if you want to make changes to it and you're facing resistance, how might you do that? And so one of those things is you actually just don't make changes to what is already there. You leave that, but you add something else to it. So in the case of a monthly report, leave the monthly report as it is, add something on top that could be... You know, the email that goes out that says the monthly report's been updated or uh, executive summary up front that says the full reports there, audience, you are welcome to go through it to your heart's uh, desires. But we've done you the extra benefit of already going through it for you. And here up front, right, in the way that we want to show things is are the things that you need to pay attention to this time. So instead of taking anything away, you're adding value and over time can sometimes then wean dependency on all of the stuff that falls in the back.
1: Yeah, because over time, then that paired approach becomes the normal and it's easier to give up some of the old monthly deck that maybe wasn't as effective. And now you're familiar with this new approach. So sometimes it's really hard to do a sharp turn. You have to make a gradual curve instead.
0: Absolutely. And I think when you do want to make that sharp turn, if you want to take something that you know we've always looked at it this way, and now we think there's reason to look at it in this other way, which by the way, there needs to be a compelling reason. That's something that we have touched on tangentially, but not directly that maybe we can come back to, but is this getting at the, what's going to make it compelling for the other person? And what's going to make it compelling is not you saying, I think we should do things differently. You've got to get at what's them. But one other strategy or another strategy when it comes to trying to get people to embrace something that is different from the way something's been shown or communicated in the past, is start with the familiar and then morph from there, or morph's not the right word start with the familiar and then transition from there into the new. And so you can actually think about how you might do this with a graph, where if your goal is to, you know, say, we've got this monthly report, this existed forever, and feeling like it's cluttered, and we're not using color as well as we could. And there's a bunch of bar charts that I think could be better shown as line graphs rather than change everything at once. If there's something important about this one graph, start by showing it the way that people are used to. And I think this becomes easiest when you're in a live environment and can do it together, but where you show them what it is, and then you transition from there stepwise visually into what it could be, because that allows you to say things like, hey, here's this data that we're used to looking at. You can see this here. And now I want you to focus on this one point, because now I'm going to change views. And now here's what this one point that we were just looking at looks like in this new view that now that you've transitioned there, and I describe that as one step, but it could be more than a single step. You bring people along with you in ways that can be useful, I think as well.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great strategy to bring your audience along with the change. As long as you know that your audience is going to be open to that, or that that change supports what their goals are. To your point, talking about what's in it for them, it's really about understanding how their success is measured and what they need help doing. And that comes again back to communicating with your audience up front to understand if there is a resistant to change. How does helping them understand how the change can align with whatever goals they have? Yeah. I, I remember encountering this in when I we did data driven marketing. We would do what's called an A B test. It's like a controlled experiment, like what I did for my dissertation, where you had two groups that got different treatments, and then you measured it on the back end. And then you did some statistical analysis to say, yes, this one actually was different. And it's statistically significant. So we know that it's going to continue to be different going forward. So therefore we recommend it. And I had one marketing manager that just never did anything with that information. And there was an obvious change and a huge opportunity for us to change a, a copy in a channel for a promotion we were doing. And so I just went back to her and I was like, what is the hesitancy to roll out with this new test? And she had a lot of questions like, well, I just don't understand how that's going to help me reach my goals. I There's a lot of work for me and my team to do. All the things that go with change, it's effortful. Yeah. I don't understand it. And so I was like, okay, if I told you this is a measurable enough change that if you did this for the rest of the year, you would beat your goals and you would actually spend less money. And then there was like a light bulb moment where it's was like, oh, so I was just communicating it in a different, in a way that wasn't clear to her and how it met her needs. So yes. again, understanding what is your audience motivated by so you can frame it that way is going to be
0: more helpful to get that adoption. Absolutely. And I think this is the case for anyone where we're trying to influence some sort of behavior is not approaching it from the standpoint of what's in it for us or why do we think they should, but the more, and especially in cases where the stakes are high, right? They're going to blow their bucket of shit out of the water if they do this thing or their targets out of the water, then it makes sense to take the time to try to understand what are our stakeholders or audiences motivations are so they can figure out how to communicate in a way that helps them understands the benefit in a way that's going to get at their driving sort of functions. So Amy, you mentioned this earlier in passing, but I want to go back to, you talked about learning Tableau in one of your roles. And I know through other conversations that we have, that part of that was getting others on board with that as well. And this goes back to one of the things that we touched on earlier, which is when you're asking people to do something where the risk of failure is perceived to be high. Like I have to now learn a tool that I don't know and, and not use the tool that I've been using maybe for forever and I'm comfortable and I know exactly how to get done what I need to get done. I'm super curious how that process went and what sort of strategies you used there that we might be able to generalize and share with folks.
1: I think new software can be intimidating for many folks. In the case uh, where we were adapting Tableau, we were actually taking it and embedding it within our software tools throughout the company. And so my team had to switch from delivering some data and analysis to clients via Excel files or data files to Tableau. So there was actually learning on the internal side and on the external side, working with our clients to understand now what we were delivering them. Sure. There were a lot of benefits that we saw just in terms of automation and just the general benefits of being able to visualize data versus getting data dumps. But as you can imagine, not everybody... Immediately saw all of those benefits. So when well, and we there's
0: ch- there's a big hurdle between everybody and those benefits of yes. the learning curve, either for the tool or for what the output's going to be, and everything that goes along with that.
1: Yeah, and and uh, there were different types of users too. So there were those that were just consuming the information we were sending them our external clients, there were internal teams that were actually developing some of these visuals that had to change how they were creating things. And so we really had to meet different users where they were. Some needed training videos and references to self-directed learning. Others needed hands-on training to understand how to navigate Tableau. Some we did both self-directed and hands-on. And that's actually where the user group came out of through that process, we thought we should have a community. This was internal to our company of just people to offer support and resources and a place to go. And so the other barrier was time, right? So not just not knowing what to do, but this is going to take me, I'm, I might fail and it's going to take me a lot of time to figure it out, especially for the developers that had to recreate all this stuff. It's a little bit easier to you know consume it differently. So we did some work around like providing templates. How can you reduce the time? It, provide a template that has already has the branding guidelines, already has the color, the font, yeah. already incorporates some of the tips
0: that we wanted. So to look for use. ways to make it easy for people, right? Yep.
1: Yeah. yeah. Remove the barriers. Like, so we had templates that had already removed the grid lines and lightened the access. so it was automatically declared. So you don't have to spend time doing like the little things. Yeah. You could spend time doing more impactful things, and then it was easier to see your success more quickly than having to figure out all of the formatting things that you have to do in Tableau is very overwhelming.
0: (laughs) And uh, did you have people who just said, nope, that's not for me?
1: Eventually, everybody had to get on board because this was a a leadership decision that we were going to be using this software. So eventually people got on board. I think something Which, day,
0: by the way, is one way to influence change, right? <laughs> get buy-in at the leadership level.
1: <laughs> yes, definitely. If you, you know, something coming down from the top, then you eventually have to get on board or you leave the company. Then something more severe happens if, if you if really have a disagreement with it. But not everybody, I would say, adapted all the data visualization best practices that we, sure. we tried to encounter. But... I did have one success story that took almost 18 months to overcome like somebody who is just in love with Excel pivot tables and macros and knew like Excel to the nth degree, like way more smart than I could be in Excel and just was so resistant to Tableau and ended up over that 18 month period working on examples in Tableau and well, here are some things Tableau could do better or differently and here's how we do it. And she actually went on and got Tableau certified and said, I actually like Tableau better than Excel now. So (laughs)
0: there there is
1: hope for even those super resistant ones, but it was hard. Tableau is not an... Tool that you just walk up to and can learn everything right away. There's so many elements to it. You can do a lot right away, but to get the full effect of it, you do have to put in time and effort with with any particular. If you already
0: feel really solid in another tool, right? That's the hesitancy. I think that's natural for picking up anything new. Yeah,
1: and then you worry about well, what about my Excel skills? But how am I going to get to use those? How I will I be valued? for that skill set anymore if we're not no longer using that tool. I mean, those right. are all the emotions that you have as a human when somebody says, I'm taking that away. Well, then what am I left with? And what does that mean about me and my identity and what I do at my job? Those yep. are all valid feelings that people are going to have. And so I think it's important just to understand that and identify it and then work together to, to overcome it.
0: Okay. So we've talked about some strategies when you want people to accept something that you're doing differently. You just talked about a specific scenario when you're trying to get someone to change and learn new tool and some successes there. I'm curious though, more about this idea of when we're presenting something and wanting to drive people to make a change. And when we don't see that happen, uh, I know trust is one of the things that you've talked about in the past as being a potential barrier for folks. And then I imagine there's some strategies related to that, that we could talk about that people could employ. Can you say more there?
1: Yeah, I think trust is a big one for anything in our daily life. So if somebody's asking you to make a change, you want to trust that person or trust the information that they're giving you or trust the source of their information. So sometimes I've been faced with what I call data skeptics mm-hmm. for various reasons. In a previous role, I was in a pretty young company that didn't have a very robust data model. So we were actually building web logs to get to a deeper understanding of our web traffic. Okay. And so it was data that we had not seen before. And we you know, pulled together all this information and went to the VP of product marketing. And he's like, I don't believe that. of our traffic is not coming from paid search because three other people told me it's a different number. I can't trust any number or the data that you're giving me, which is a valid concern. So that was eye-opening because I realized now I had to go and and meet with these three other people and make sure that we were aligned on our data sources and how we were calculating things so that we could actually make an, an impactful change. Other times it's the process. So how did you join this data or how did you do your analysis? And other times it's, I don't really know you or the work that you've done. And if I can trust what you're saying to me. So I think those are some of the barriers you might encounter with trust. A couple ways to address that uh, would be just relationship building, getting to know your audience in enlisting some support somebody that already knows who you're communicating with that maybe your audience already trusts and try to get them on board and things like that what have you tried for yeah it all comes back
0: to this like it's managing expectations i think but then also figuring out yeah the trust is a hard one but i think you're right that pulling in other people to vouch, or your example of where you then join forces with the the other two so that you can be on the same page. And now all of your cases are stronger as a result of that. The hard thing is it's hard to come back to that once you've been in that scenario with that particular audience member. So the more you can do to anticipate where that could happen, (laughs) because in retrospect, had you known, you could have gotten with everybody ahead of time, gotten your data sources straight gotten the way you were defining things straight and then not had the trust issue come up in the first place which we don't always we don't always know enough to be able to do that or have all of the context to know what numbers have been shared with someone before But I think always, the more we can anticipate where things might be out of alignment or where things could go wrong, then we can proactively do things to try to address that. I think also just coming back to the audience and figuring out what are their hot topics or the things that they value? And how can you bring value through those things to them as a way of establishing those relationships? And it may be by figuring out who across different parts of the organization you could team up with or invite into the fold for different projects. And it really, it goes back to this relation building that you talk about of figuring out where do you align and where do you create allies in ways that are going to help you be successful in driving whatever it is you're trying to drive. Yes.
1: It all comes back to the audience, understanding them, their, their point of view, their values. And then I think just another point on the audience is having empathy when you're asking them to change. So not understanding their current situation, but what situation you might be putting them in with your recommendation and coming at it from that side could make change a little bit easier.
0: Absolutely. So, Amy, we've talked about a ton of good stuff today, why people are resistant to change, a little bit about what that resistance looks like through some different scenarios and anecdotes. We've talked about a lot of different strategies to deal with different situations. This is certainly not a comprehensive <laughs> overview. We could talk from much more. And yeah, there's so many other, I think, facets to think through when it comes to how how we influence with data how we drive people to change, how we deal with challenges of change. But oftentimes it means coming back to what does that puzzle look like this time? What are the pieces we have control over? How do we make them work as best we can to help influence what we're trying to influence? so I'll be super curious. I think we should start a conversation in the community just to both collect more examples of types of challenges that people have faced in this space, but also more ideas for how to overcome them and strategies for folks to employ. And we've talked about some resources here that I'll make sure get into the show notes today. But with all of that being said, Amy, any final tip or thoughts that you want to leave folks with today?
1: I'm super curious to see the feedback and uh, what the community conversation brings, because I think the more input and more points of view, the, the better it could be. Taking it back to biases, biases are these like quick thinking shortcuts that humans have developed that our brain uses that aren't always rational status quo bias is just one of many. And I think as we went through this conversation, the main point was to pause and slow down and think about your audience and take the time to be empathetic and think about change. So just in that sense of combating bias, it's okay not to think so quickly. We can go a little bit slower and think more about our audience and be empathetic with them and we'll be more successful in enacting change.
0: Fantastic. So before we close, I'll mention that registration is open for our half-day virtual workshops in 2022. We have two formats you can choose from, the five-hour session in a single sitting on February 15th, and the same content split over two two-and-a-half-hour sessions on February 16th and 17th. More details and registration at storytellingwithdata.com slash workshops. Use the code PODCAST10, that's PODCAST10, during the registration, Registration process for 10% off listed prices. Amy, thank you for joining me for a great conversation today.
1: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a real pleasure.
0: With that, be sure to follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. Also check out all the great resources at storytellingwithdata.com. Thanks for listening.